and uh, you just don't need much else. You need you need a good stove, a good fridge, a good woman, a good fly rod, a good rifle, a good guitar, you know, a good canoe, a good skiff, and it feels good. Just tune it up, tune up your act, and, and let's let's save some shit. Why don't we? you have a fly rod in your hand? It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet you meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to The Captain's Collective. In today's episode, we sit down with J.T. Van Zant of Rockport, Texas, and talk about his journey into guiding and what it looks like for him today to continue to fight for conservation. We also talk about a whole slew of topics, including beard care, hunting, and great places to eat in Texas. There's very few people that I've enjoyed talking to as much as I enjoyed talking to J.T., and his passion is definitely contagious. I know that you guys are going to enjoy this episode and the time that we had together. I hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective. Success is a gift. Excellence is the only thing to strive for. He tried to eat it. He tried to eat it. Hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him. He got him. He's on it. two butt caps off the rods, filled them with tequila. We took a shot and out we went. There, there ain't no getting into it after that. It's, you're, you're hooked. It's a bad habit. And all the time flips the, and he's standing there ready to go for a tarpon. And he turned around, he said, you talk so much, you're like a senator. Hey, JT, thanks for sitting down and joining us on the podcast. Oh, you bet, Hunter. Hey, so before we dive in, you're a pretty well-known guy in the fishing community, and you've done a good job uh, just having a great online presence and being involved in things from a nationwide standpoint. But I'd love to hear about how you first got into fishing and really where this all began for you. Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, I fished as a kid, kind of with a cane pole, um, no one else fished in my family, so it was just kind of self-discovery kind of deal. Um, caught catfish on worms and whatnot with my grandma. And it it elevated when I broke my leg real bad in college. And I figured I should stop messing around with BMX bikes and find something else that gave me the same excitement. Um, but was maybe a little more adult. And I saw Walker's K Chronicles while I was laid up. And as a Texas kid, uh, fly fishing was pretty foreign. I'd, I'd seen references of it, um, but I just had to figure out what it was. And then lo and behold, there was a, a fantastic fly fishing store in Austin called the Austin Angler, filled with um, a tremendous you know, staff of passionate people. They welcomed me in and I was just, you know, just obsessed from the, from the start. Still am. It gets worse. You know, it's like, yeah, uh, it's a, it's a lifelong passion and, and love affair with the tackle, with the presentation. Um, and then it turns into hopefully kind of a deeper meaning and uh, desire to protect, preserve things. And you said that you were 
the first person in your family to really fish or fish on a serious level. When for you, like, did it really click that this was something that you were going to love and something that you would kind of lean into on your own? Um, you know, I, uh, I started bass fishing fairly seriously in my late teens and um, was buying lures, I guess even right before I began driving. So around 14, 15, I, I started throwing a bait caster and, and working topwater lures like, like a pop bar and, you know, just these Walmart lures I would buy. And um, that was really exciting, you know, a topwater strike from a bass, usually in some kind of farm pond or muddy river in Texas. And um, I didn't feel like there was a community or tribe that I belonged to in that. It was just something if I was bored, um, I would kind of grab that and go ride around, maybe fish golf course ponds near my house and stuff like that. Was it something that you felt supported in? No, you know, and that's one of the blessings in disguise of my childhood as a, as an only kid with, um, with my mom worked and she was married a couple times. My second stepdad, who's been with, with me and my family since 1981, he worked as well. Um, you could back in Houston when I was a kid, you could get in pretty serious trouble or you could find something else to do. But you know, I mean, asteroids wasn't even out on Atari yet. So you, it was usually some outdoor pursuit. You would either ride your bike, ride your skateboard. Um, and fishing was just one of those little things that I kept around if I was bored with other activities. It wasn't until I, I discovered the fly rod and, and really started to devote myself to learning to cast that, that I became just like, full on obsessed with the whole process, uh, tying flies. When was that? Le- learning when did you knots. get into fly fishing? I would have been 21. It would have been in 1991. Okay. And you said that in a way your upbringing was an advantage or there were some benefits to that. I think a lot of times when we think about it, you know, my dad's a fishing captain. My great grandpa was a mullet fisherman in Tampa and a lot of times we think of the advantage of coming from a lineage of fishermen. But in what no, ways did I, you did that come out as an advantage or, or what ways has that shaped you and who you are today? Yeah, no, uh, sorry to interrupt. And, and you, made, you made a great point. I was always jealous of kids that like came from this lineage of understanding, especially of fishing. Um, I think it drove me more. But what I meant, I guess, from the time and place I was from, that, that there was nothing to do. Um, kids weren't wasting away in front of a screen back then. Everyone was outside and you were usually like, hopefully not harming animals, but definitely like setting off firecrackers and stuff, you know, yeah, lighting fires to things like, um, you, you sort of, you sort of had to self govern and, uh, man, Houston was a tough place. I won't sugarcoat it. Like there was a lot of fist fighting and a lot of trouble and you either kind of like, seeked out trouble or you veered away from it. And I was just sort of uncomfortable, um, being in trouble all the time. So I started trying to find constructive ways to spend my time. I did, you know, get like a gun when I was really young. I think when I was, before I was 10 years old, I had a, like a 410 shotgun. 
mm-hmm. and I shot a lot of birds and I had to ki- I had to eat what I killed and that sort of became burdensome you know I was tired of skinning squirrels and and uh, um, you know like tanning hides and stuff like that there was always a process beyond the act of killing something that took a lot of work and you know it didn't always taste delicious so I kind of got over that naturally. I didn't revisit hunting until kind of my late 20s. Um, But fly fishing has this way of, I think, um, providing the same stimulation in that instinct to hunt. But then you can, if you're trained in the art of catch and release, you can safely release this animal to live on, which was this even more empowering, like I didn't, kill that thing but I still saw it and I caught it right um you know I'm at this point I fish every day and uh as a job you know I always wanted to do something I didn't dread as as a kid who just was never on the right path to begin with I just sort of like all, all I just ended up hoping whatever it was that I ended up getting paid to do wasn't a total drag right <laughs> yeah and um and I don't know, for some reason, you know, I guided really early on. I guided on a trout stream in Southern Colorado, Pagosa Springs, like in the early 90s. I was pretty shocked because I went into the fly fishing store, introduced myself, just said I was up for the summer. And the shop owner said, well, how long have you fly fished? And I said, well, I really just started, but I've been really devoted. I told him I broke my leg and I was laid up for a long time. So I've been casting a yarn ball for like six months and I can put it inside of a hula hoop from any direction in any wind from just about any distance. He's like, oh, wow. So he's like, you should just guide for me. And I'm like, oh, I'm not prepared to do that, right? I haven't been in this even like a full year and a half yet. He's like, no, how man. Old, it's, how old were um, you there? Early 20s, 22 maybe. Okay. Um, he convinced me to you know take a job that summer as a guide. I was super excited and uh, I did pretty well. I was good with people. Um, I was a, I was a quick study on trout. And back then and on the private land, we fished on the upper San Juan River below Wolf Creek Pass. Uh, I mean, it was like New Zealand, man. There was big trout everywhere in that river. So all you had to do was be nice to people, give them a sandwich and kind of show them how to cast and their indicator or their dry fly was going to get eaten, you know, so... And then from there on, for you, was it just guiding? No, I guided for a while, and I did that for a while. I, I had to make supplementary income, so I started learning carpentry skills. And I really got into, um, you know, first I just cleaned up job sites. I think I did that for the fir- first couple seasons on the construction team. Um, then I started doing some some frame, framing assistant, and then... Ultimately, I was framing, and the cabinet crew would come in, you know, towards the end, and I was always watching those guys with their smaller tapes and their finer tools, and I thought, man, that's kind of where it's at. I want to follow this thing I'm doing upstream and learn the most intricate details of woodworking. And so I, I did I did woodworking for a good 15 years or so, Um Oh, okay. At least, well, yeah. From the very beginning, if, if construction jobs and just 
grunt labor and then finally cabinetry, a total of probably 20 years. But I ended up owning a cabinet shop and having some, some employees, about 20 of them. And then I joined a much larger um, construction company and managed the same group of guys and had a career with insurance and uh, retirement plan and all that kind of stuff. But it got very stressful. Um, I wasn't hands-on woodworking anymore. I was administrating and estimating jobs and managing people and uh, working Saturday, Sunday, every week. And it just became very, um, very uh, unpleasant. You know, just I, I was stressed out all the time. It was crisis mode all the time. I hadn't fished by the end of that career. I hadn't fished but one or two, three times in a year. Maybe I took a trip to Mexico and just enough to dig my tackle out of a box and, and I was like, this is unacceptable, but what's the solution? I'm an adult. Like, how am I going to make a living? And in some ways I I was, in some ways I regretted all those years. Um, I really appreciated the achievement. I was proud of the work I did. I was proud of my guys. I was proud of the teamwork. Um, We were in the trenches together, finishing these very complex projects and on a very high end scale. And that was something to be very proud of. I, I kind of proved to myself that I was capable of, of achieving sort of success in that, in that, um, in that career, in that trade. And, but the pride wasn't enough to get me through the angst and the misery of, of the daily grind of that career. And I just, I dreamed of like traveling and fishing again. Um, Going back to those early days of guiding in Colorado, hell, I probably made 75 bucks a trip. And by, you know, after the, after the outfitter took his chunk out of it, um, and the Texas coast, it it had always been my favorite place to fish because it was relatively untouched. I always thought that redfish were just super special and you could just basically go, it's just super vast and complex and when you found them, it was always in super shallow water, you know, mid-calf or less. You'd see the sparkle of their fins breaking the surface. And if you could get a cast to them without spooking them, you're likely to get eaten, right? And so I was always in the back of my head, but I'm like, who would ever pay me to do that? And if so, how much? There weren't very many successful guides making a bunch of money down here in, on the Texas coast. And so it just didn't seem like a rational career move. Um, and I'm glad I didn't start way back when I'd probably be burned out by now, but I came back to it, um, you know, about 10 years ago with just this absolute certainty that that's what I wanted to do. I tried enough other things. I got myself into all these other predicaments. I'd, I'd seen how the, how the wealthy live and I was building their houses and and it didn't seem all that appealing to me to go off into some career and try to make a ton of money so I could live that way either. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be free. I wanted to pursue my, my fishing goals, but mainly it's just the tranquility of being in that setting. And that's what fly fishing has always meant to me. If you have a fly rod in your hand, it's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet, you meet hopefully wonderful people and it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure, you know? Mm. But it seems to me like 20 years into a career, you got employees, you got a business, you're doing well. 
in some ways that seems even more intimidating to inner guiding than say somebody who loves fishing and is 19, 20 years old. Could you talk me through just how you made that leap? Because I think that there's a lot of people who would dream about that, but they would just stay in the same routine and the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And, um, you know, guiding full time, um, doing 90, hundred plus days straight, which I do, it's equally amount, the same amount of work, uh, maybe even more, but it's not for someone else. Um, and, and there's, there's people out there that like woodworking more than they like fishing. So they're in the right spot. Um, whatever it is, it's got to make you feel good. I think it should. Um, and I'm, I'm in a place of, of being very fortunate to, um, to have been able to make that decision. I owe a lot of that to my wife who was working at the time as well. And throughout conversations of just being unhappy at my job, she's like, well, what are we going to do? And I'm like, man, I think I want to, I think I want to, I think I want to guide on the coast. And she was apprehensive as any, any, uh, any good woman in your life should be about some crazy leap. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but she was supportive and she believed in me and, and it worked out. Um, you know, so that's a great question, Hunter. Um, I'm, I come from a place where I come from a time where, where you worked long and hard to get good at something and just because you got good at something didn't mean that that was what you were supposed to do. Mm. I think I think back to men of older times that they they could process deer, or they could they could hunt. They might work at a bank, but they knew a bunch of things, right? Um, they had tools. They could probably fix stuff. They didn't glorify themselves on all those different skills. It was just in early America; those were things men were supposed to be able to do, right? Um, mm -hmm. if you couldn't change a tire, you just weren't a man. And I don't care if you wore a suit to work or you were a mechanic, like you have to have basic skills where I'm from to be considered manly. And so, um, I think it's only recently where this, this idea like, Hey, I did this thing. I'm going to do it professionally. Like that, that seems to occur way too soon in the eyes of, uh, of mm. young men that I encounter these days. Like I caught a redfish on a fly rod. I'm going to be a guide. Like there's so much more to it than that. And there's so much more to life to discover than to just, you know, throw down your bags at the very first thing that you find instant success at. Um, you know, and, and in some ways it's better if, and I always advise young, young men on my boat, young women on my boat who are like, I just started fly fishing. I love it. I want to do this professionally. It's like, whoa, hold on. You know, you come from resources. Like, why don't you try to be successful at something that you can tolerate or even love and keep fishing as this private thing that is meaningful to you? I fished on my own for 20 plus years and not because I thought that I was going to do it professionally, just because it's something that made me extremely happy, right? Mm. Um, I, I just, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? And, and I'm yeah. not condemning the millennials or, or anyone that's come after me. I just think that, that you have to explore many things in your life 
to find the thing that, that is most meaningful to you and makes the most sense is the most responsible decision. It's a combination of how am I going to live a comfortable life, create stability and and safety for my family, for my wife, for my for my kids, mm. buy a house, insurance. You know, that doesn't mean you have to slave away at something you hate. It just means you need to be really careful and thoughtful about what it is you choose to do. If you love to fish and you go off and you do other things and you decide, hey, I just can't, I just can't swing this. I'm missing days on the water. That is most important to me. Well, maybe you're supposed to be a fishing guide, but you need to get ready not to fish very much, to watch other people fish. And you also have to be ready to be fresh and excited for every trip you take, whether it's the first trip that week or the or the last trip that season. Those clients have to have to have you at your best on a daily basis. Um, and I just think that uh, if you're not real careful about it, you think you want to do it, but you're not sure and you get a year or so in and you're not getting, if you're successful, you're going to be booked. And if it's just not absolutely passion driven, the ultimate goal to be on the water, to be in your boat, to be re you know, tying flies, tying leaders, preparing your tackle, making your lunch. You're, you're basically your own secretary and CEO. So you do everything right. Boat maintenance, it's never ending. I mean, uh, being a fly fishing guide is a, is a 12 to 14 hour a day, um, you know, job. And, and I, I don't have time to take my kids fishing. I don't have, I don't get to go see their baseball games. Like this is what I do and I'm all in. I love it. Thank God. Um, but there's probably much easier ways to make a lot more money. Right. Yeah. So just be careful what you think you want and make sure it's the, it's the real deal for you. Yeah. And I think that's helpful. You know, as somebody who's 27, I'm closer to the 19 year old who is trying to get into it than I am to the 20 plus years of business. But I will say that something that my wife and I often talk about is there's a tendency for people who are younger, like myself to look at things that our parents have or look at things that people worked really hard for, or it took a long time for them to figure it out and to want that immediately. And it's unrealistic. And it, you know, you miss the journey when your expectation is we're going to, the, the first job I ever get in is going to be the job the rest of my life. The first house I'm going to buy is going to be the house the rest of my life. And I do think that there's a pressure that a lot of young people have to try to figure everything out the moment they turn Immediately. 18. And it comes and with I, the territory yeah. these days. I mean, if I think of something I want that, that, uh, that I saw that was cool, I can pull up an Amazon app and I'll buy the thing and I get it like in a day and a half. Like I get it. It's, it's super convenient. Um, yeah. you know, shit, I might be half trying to talk young people out of guiding so that I don't have to see them on the water. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's you know, another piece. It's, it's selfish. Like I'm, I, I see a lot of guides popping up these days and, um, I sort of, uh, came on when the old guard, was just getting sort of to the end of their runway and there wasn't a whole lot of other fly fishing guides on the Texas coast and they're, they're, they're springing up like popcorn now. Um, the ones that rush it, but that tends to work itself out. I, I've yeah. learned not to be too worried about it. And the ones that are meant to be here, um, I usually, uh, make that bridge and, and respect those people and, and get along quite well with them. 
But see, but, I, uh, I have the privilege of getting to hang out with a lot of different guides. And one of the things that I see is there's certain people who come in and they might be able to get a lot of books at first because they're just really smart at search engine optimization or trying to basically put together all the smoke and mirrors on the internet that will get a certain amount of bookings at the beginning. Whereas the old guard, the way that they built their business, and I still think this is the best way that people build their business. And this has been the tried and true thing that I've seen across the board with guides is through word of mouth. Like you take somebody out, you work hard, you know, understand the fishery, you put them on fish, you respect them, you give them a good time and they go back and they tell people. And so, yeah, there's flash in the pan that comes with, Oh, I have a little moment of success. Um, but it is hard work and it requires a lot of passion. And that's something that through our conversations leading up to this, we've had several, one of the things I know about you is that you're somebody who's not just passionate about the job that you have, but passionate about the place that it takes place, the Gulf, the, the, the fishery, the, the, the place that you go to work every single day. And I'd love for you just to explain has that always been there for you? Have you always been passionate about conservation and about the environment? Or has that been something that has evolved over the years as you've spent more time experiencing it? Oh, man, definitely evolved. Um, definitely evolved. I mean, my generation threw fast food bags out the window, honestly, and shamefully to say, like, um, you know, beer cans and whatnot, like, yeah, I mean, I've gone on highway pickups um, to try to clean up just to improve my karma from the days of being a kid. The, it's it's a it's all a brand new notion. My lifetime is spanned from when Jacques Cousteau thought the oceans were limitless to us now seeing that we're in a pretty tough spot. Um, it, it it seems it seems natural to me. Like I'm I'm kind of a country boy. I'm. I come from country people. I lived in Houston, but that was even, even though it was a big city, it was still rural. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, we were always playing in mud and picking up bullfrogs and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so I'm like a, I'm like a candidate for, for like a driving a, a big jacked up truck and leaving it running when I go in the store. And somehow, I don't know what, it, what it is exactly, but Somehow it's always been apparent to me that, 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 that there is a limit to um, what we can consume, consume and still have more left over for everyone else. Like, um, and, and like once you stop, say, buying paper towels, like it really bothers you to use one at someone else's house. And when you stop buying water bottles, and which is a very tough thing to do, like to go into a gas station on the road through New Mexico on the way to the mountains and like you're hungry for snacks. I mean, it takes a lot of preparation if you're going to air travel and not like take the water cup that they walk down the aisle with you must, you have to bring your own canteen and fill it up. Once you get through security, when you get used to doing those things, it feels really natural and the additional work and inconvenience it causes is well worth it. Just in, in terms of how you feel, about not consuming those needless products, right? Um, I've become just really adamant, and I'm not. I'm. It's it's tough to explain. Like I don't I don't try to project that on anyone. I don't find a lot of fault in people. Um, 
But I do wish a lot more people would just go through the effort of not just consuming useless garbage all the time. I truly feel for myself that at the end of my life, um, I should be judged on like my own waste pile. Like if, if at the end of my life, you laid out in front of me everything I ever consumed that, that couldn't be recycled, you know, shit, man, that's a lot of stuff, right? It comes from somewhere. It comes from cutting down trees. It comes from coring into the earth for minerals. Like I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I, I want my kids to have a a healthy resource, a healthy outdoor resource to enjoy themselves in, like I did. And so, sometimes I'm misguided. I'm not a scientist. I, I'm not super super smart. You know, I'm pretty intelligent, but I just think. Uh, uh, I, I try to take a path that I can live with and that makes me proud and thinking that I'm, I'm existing and leaving a pretty minimal footprint. I think it's as important as, as obtaining a bunch of wealth and stuff, right? Um, gives me a great sense of pride to know that I'm, I'm, I'm using as little fuel as I can. I'm being thoughtful about the things I buy. Like when I load my cart in the store with vegetables, I don't put them in the baggie. I just put them in the cart. Might piss off the cashier to have to weigh a bunch of apples individually, but you know, at the end of the day, I don't have to deal with that waste, and I'm better for that. You know? Yeah. I don't know well, where I got off on that tangent, but uh, no, yeah, no, I, just I we all wheel it. the we wheel the big container out to the street on a weekly basis for the garbage man to come by and pick up. Um, and you know, at first my recycle bin was a lot bigger than my trash can, even though it's a smaller container, I might have one or two small bags of trash in the trash can, which is huge. And then, so I traded out for a smaller trash can and got the bigger recycle bin. And then I thought, hold on, like, why do I even need to be recycling this shit? How about if I don't use that either? Right. Um, Mm. And it, it takes it takes a lot. It takes a lot of discipline. If I go to the store and they're handing out little samples of pizza squares, but they're in a plastic Dixie cup, I pass, right? And that's gone as far as for me to take my own glass Tupperware to the butcher and I have them put the sticker of the tear weight on the wax paper and just skip like the, the plastic bag it goes in and I just put it in my container and they scan it at the register. My favorite Vietnamese place, you know, will make make a to-go dish and they know I'm coming with my own thing and they don't bag it up until I show up and give them my container and they put it in that and it'll last forever. I have Ziplocs that are seven years old. Well, that was something last night you and I were talking and I, I shared this with you, but I feel like you've brought some conviction to me about how much I do that is just based out of laziness and, and just being too lazy to think something through or to bring something, but something that I've really grown. Laziness is being tough on yourself. I think it's just habit and it takes a lot to change a habit, right? Yeah. Well, it takes work. And to me, like avoiding work, even on a personal level, like avoiding work is, is laziness, you know? And I think that I'm not saying that we have to do like fear mongering, but I do think that, hey, if we can avoid these little things, then then we should. And something I respect about you is that you're not just somebody who calls for um, people to be conscientious at a macro level, which I want to talk about, but you also personally try to live it out on a micro level. It seems to me like based off our conversations and time, like 
that you try not to be, you try to be gracious and, and you don't try to push things on people too hard. But at the same time, you do seem to try to avoid being hypocritical and saying, look, if I'm going to get upset at something happening on the macro level, I need to first look in the mirror. And that was something I shared with you that a mutual friend, Brett Martinez said was everybody wants to look across the table and nobody wants to look in the mirror. And the point behind that is not that we don't try to challenge larger systems and larger things that are making negative impacts, but that we do a good job also of making sure that in our daily lives and the small things that we're, we're doing that as well. I would love for you though, um, and that was all very helpful on a personal level, but I would love for you to share. I know that the, the way that you and I kind of got connected was just through trying to understand and fight for something that's very serious at the macro level. Do you mind just helping the listeners understand what's happening going on in Texas? I think a lot of times when we talk about clean water, a lot of times we, we, we look at environmental issues south of Okeechobee and those are important, but you know, you, you and I began a, a conversation about what's happening over in Texas. And I'd love for you to let people know about, uh, one, just what's happening and two, how you think that we collectively as a group of people who love the outdoors and love the environment can try to make a positive impact and, and change. Um, yeah, and I suppose you're talking about some of the just recent in, uh, announcement of industrialization coming to the yeah. middle Texas coast. Sure. And 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 to just back up for a second, it's important to me that, that you guys out there realize, like, I'm not on a soapbox. I really am one of the last candidates to be just, like, focused on some kind of zero waste thing. And there's tons of holes in my game. Like, there's a million ways I could improve on that. Um, but I've just decided to make it fun and challenging um to consume less and and it it makes me feel good so that's all there is to that um but yeah you know hearing about all all of the agricultural issues that have affected the the water quality in florida i just thought man poor guys and just you think about the keys and the everglades and how precious that water is it's the the birthplace of saltwater fly fishing It's, it's kind of the holy grail and I always thought, you know, um, that's a tough thing to, to that really is like, I, I would have never as a Texas boy tried to go out to Florida and make myself, um, you know, put myself in the way out there as a guide. So I thought, man, let me just deal with what I have here, which is this tremendous red fishery. Now it's a red fishery primarily. It's, it's redfish, black drum, really, really good speckled trout fishing and sheephead and a few other species flounder and whatnot but um it used to be the tarpon capital of the world before we dammed our rivers and so we stuck ourselves um with the loss of like snook and tarpon in texas simply by damming up the rivers and using all that water upstream and municipalities um but our red fishing and our trout fishing hasn't suffered all that much in fact I think it's the best in the world. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, it turns out that this giant oil discovery in West Texas is being piped down to the middle Texas coast to be sold to foreign countries. And in the process, certain government agencies are trying to take some shortcuts to do some things inshore. When I say inshore, Texas has a a long barrier island that protects us from the Gulf of Mexico. Um, it protects us in terms of storms. And if there were an oil spill offshore, it'd be really hard for that oil to just rush into our estuary because we only have 
an opening about every 50 to 60, 80 miles along the Gulf Coast. You could count them on, you know, two hands, the length of our state, about 480 miles of coastline. The barrier island is continuous with either a jettied pass or a natural open pass about every 50 to 60 miles. So um, all of this oil is coming and these super tankers are going to start showing up to pick this oil up. And, you know, I'm careful not to disparage the oil business as a whole. I mean, I, I use an outboard engine. I drive a Chevy pickup. Like I consume gasoline. I consume oil. Um, mm. I'm not against the oil business. I, I simply would, would, uh, rather see sustainable and safe growth within that industry. Right. But, um, in specifically the port of Corpus Christi authority, um, is determined to maximize the profit of the land they own, which is to, the land they own is dedicated to ports. And they commission the contents of ships that tie up to their ports and their ports are inland. So in order to make money on this oil coming from the Midland Odessa area, the port of Corpus Christi has determined that these super tankers come inside of our estuary and, and to, to make that possible, they want to dredge an 80 foot channel through our inner bay system and put in a bunch of desalinization plants and VLCC loading terminals and tank farms. The safest, most reasonable thing to do is to have offshore loading terminals like they do around the world. The ships pull off well offshore. The pipes that are coming through from all the way from West Texas continue through our coastline offshore about 50 miles or so. And those ships can tie up, load up, be gone. And at no point is our estuary in harm's way. Um, but the Port of Corpus Christi doesn't get paid if that happens. So you have some very powerful people in the state, the governor, the Corps of Engineers, TECQ, which is the Texas Commission of Environmental Quality, and the Port of Corpus Christi Authority, who are kind of in cahoots to make these, these inshore facilities happen. Um, there's been some really sort of secretive, elusive, and even sinister like disguising and last minute public hearings, just they've made it very difficult for the working man in Texas to show up and um, oppose these projects. And they're getting sort of ramrodded through. And it disgusts me as a seventh generation Texan. Uh, it makes me want to scream. I mean, I'm, I'm mm. furious. I'm frustrated. I'm going through the clinical stages of grief in dealing with, uh, these projects. I've gone to some public hearings. I've spoke publicly to the board about my opposition, but I mean, it's just, I'm not saying there's nothing we can do, but it's going to take a lot of public outcry, which doesn't exist right now to stop what's in motion. And at that point, what I'm looking at, um, and literally sort of overnight since I've heard about it is the loss of the quality of our inshore fishing. And the least of my worries, which is still at the, uh, uh, is paramount, is the loss of my career, the loss of this ecosystem. I mean, I, I exploit this ecosystem for a living, but it's a very mild form of exploitation, right? I catch and release redfish. I talk to people about the plant life, the sea life, the bird life that exists here. 
Um, and it's very difficult to know where I've been once I've left the, that area. You know, I'm a fly fisherman. I, I shut down in the creek. I pull into the flats. I work a big area. I pull out. I start up in the creek and I go to a new spot. Um, you know, what these people want to do in, in terms of their form of exploitation is to create a bunch of silt that would kill all the seagrass um, by blocking photosynthesis. And they want basically they see on paper a bunch of a bunch of terminals, a bunch of desal plants, a bunch of money being made by export of oil under the guise of oil independence for the United States. And none of it even stays here. You know, it doesn't make any sense. It's simply a money grab for for people that are already extremely wealthy. There's not a tremendous amount of jobs created through these projects, especially when compared to the loss of jobs in the tourism industry. So it's not just some fly fisherman like me that's going to lose his, his career. It's hoteliers, restaurant owners, um, you know, real estate value, you name it. Like um, we're a sparsely populated area and we're an environmentally rich area. One of the one of the first designated federal reserves is Bird Island Basin, the national seashore south of Corpus Christi, about 80 miles of pristine beach with no development sea turtles thrive. I mean, that, that is at risk. It just makes no sense. And this oil is merely a 30 year supply that's coming from Midland. So once that's gone, this is a toxic waste dump. And I think they're counting on the next, next generation, not really fully understanding or knowing what they, what they lost, you know, Mm. once it's gone, it's gone forever. And it scares me to death. Yeah. And one of the things I think that as I have these conversations and I'm trying to learn and we're hopeful that people will care and will learn, but how do you think we move the needle forward? How do we make a difference with all of this? Because at times it just does feel like there's not very much we can do. And I know that you're trying to, to do what you can to be active and to be a part. Yeah. So and like we get hit with bad news all the time these days, right? Overseas in our own country. And man, I truly believe that, that world leaders kind of get together and and create these smoke screens of 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 drama to keep us occupied and divided while in the meantime it's really corporations that are able to buy politicians favor and just push these type of things through when we're looking the other way you know what i mean um i talk to people in austin or houston or dallas even rockport where i live about these projects and they haven't even heard of it right these are massive hundred billion dollar operations. Um, and, and the government just does so well talking to us about free our, our freedom and, and, you know, our guns and our, our, our right to this and that. Um, and it's bullshit. Like they, they don't represent us. I, I, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. Um, I'm an outdoorsman and that, that, that doesn't support either party. Like progress to me is not the, the, the clear cutting of forests and the building of roads and strip malls and, and sprawl. To me, progress is, is maintaining the quality of life that you can live outdoors. And you have to really take time out of your life. Like the public meeting that me and a bunch of, uh, I'd say about 150 community members went to just a few days ago in Corpus Christi, it lasted till 11 30, 12 o'clock at night. Um, 
And the panel from TCQ was very, oh, what's the right word? I mean, just um, uninterested in the public comments. And there was a bunch of working class people just spilling their guts about their allergies and what chemicals are going to be released from these smokestacks and how many super tankers a day are going to come into our, our estuary. And every answer was, that's I'm sorry, that's qualified information. And mm. it, it was just such a callous um, presence that they, and this is the Texas Commission of Environmental Quality, which I would call the Texas Commission of Environmental Degradation. Like these people have allowed mm. plastic plants that have broken every rule, every code, polluted tremendously. If you look up and down the coast, Galveston, Freeport, those are not clean areas. Those are not places you want to swim and go fishing and consume fish from. Um, and and they tell us that the like that that we're all going to benefit from this business, from this from this economy, and it's not true. Like the oil that's being sold doesn't belong to us, and we won't see the money from that. And it's sold to China and South America before it even gets here. It doesn't create any oil independence. And I always think about that, right? So if oil's super cheap right now. We could be buying up all the oil from around the world and not drilling in the Gulf and not drilling in West Texas. Um, wouldn't our oil be a lot more valuable if we we had the last oil on the planet available? Like I think hmm. like if, if I had something of value, I would want to sit on it till everyone ran out and then sell it at a premium, right? No, this is hmm. individual companies who own the rights to that oil want to sell it as quickly as possible and profit as much as possible in the shortest amount of time, period. And we all we all believe what they're telling us, and I wish we would stop that. And I wish we would mm-hmm. stand up or at least just write a letter to the governor, to TCQ, to the Port of Corpus Christi, and say, hey, Port Aransas and the Middle Texas Coast, the National Seashore, it's important to us that that be preserved, you know, pipe that oil well offshore in a safe manner to an offshore loading terminal and too bad for Port Corpus Christi. They're not going to commission those ships, but they'll, they'll survive. They still own land. They'll be fine. There's still tons of trade. I just filmed. Okay. So yesterday, day before, um, Saturday. So Thursday, I saw two barges collide in the intercoastal canal adjacent to the Aransas wildlife refuge, which is where, the remaining 500 whooping cranes that exist that that go on their own. So there's a population in Florida, but that ultralight has to lead them north. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, in yeah. Texas, we have the actual um, wild flock of mm-hmm. whooping cranes. And in, like in 1941, they were down to 21 birds due to the plume trade, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. It's a true success story of conservation. Over the years, they've grown and grown and grown. They go somewhere in Ontario to a federal reserve up there. And then in the winter months from roughly middle of October to the middle of April, they fly down to Texas and they, and they, and they come to the Aransas wildlife refuge. That's the only place they don't go north up to Port O'Connor. They don't go south down to Corpus Christi or Baffin Bay. They come right there just north of Rockport. Um, and two, big barges collided under tugboat power. Luckily they were loaded with gravel. So, I mean, I called the Coast Guard, I called Texas Parks and Wildlife. I wanted to make sure that this 
incident was documented for public record. Because to me, um, these are extremely small crafts compared to super tankers or VLCCs, very large crude crude carriers, right? Um, If... If we were to dredge, and not only that, since since those two barges collided, a third barge, which was packed with raw sugar, ran into the submerged barge, and it is currently outside the refuge, taking on water. Like mm. I remember, there was a there was a in Hawaii, there was a huge container ship full of sugar that sunk, and it created some serious ecological issues. Well, what normally travels up and down. ICW, the Intercoastal Waterway, just adjacent to the refuge, are ships with various chemicals, usually benzene and other just highly toxic chemicals. So it's just an act of God that two gravel barges collided and not two benzene barges, right? Which I I think that the gravel barges make up a a less than 10% of the contents that go up and down that canal. Well, when the Port of Corpus Christi and their plans to dredge the Aransas Channel, which is the jetties at Port Aransas, from its current 35 foot to 80 feet, all the way to the harbor in Corpus Christi, that dredging alone, going 50 feet deeper with with that giant channel, the silt that that's going to create is like the first death nail to the, the environmental quality of our area. But the idea that 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 would make it deeper than any port in the United States, in the smallest, shallowest estuary in the United States, right? It's ludicrous when these ships could just turn around well offshore and safely load up to an offshore terminal. Once again, it just comes down to the fact that this this government agency, the Port of Corpus Christi, won't get paid if these ships don't come inshore. Mm-hmm. We have to stand up and just say, sorry guys, it's not happening. We're gonna preserve the Middle Texas coast it's where we love to get away from the city and come down and let our kids build sandcastles and watch birds and catch fish and hang out. Like that is more important. Progress is maintaining your environmental quality. Hmm. And, and, you know, you and I have been talking on and off for a while now. And one of the things that I think is just a big challenge for anybody that cares about helping with this is just the information wars that exist. And one of the things that you mentioned to me the other day, because we had hoped to record this earlier and we just due to scheduling, we, we struggled to get it was you came and said, well, actually it's actually a positive thing because I'm more informed than ever. I've learned more than ever. And I think that it would be interesting too, to, how do how do we help people not be misguided? How do people go and find the information that they need in order to to join the fight? God, man, shit! If I know, I've been uh, I've been fortunate in meeting some folks lately from the Port Aransas Conservancy. Um, they have a bunch of lawyers, environmental lawyers, and concerned people that have a a, a lot of uh, education and wisdom who. Um, who are, 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 are taking time out of their personal lives, very similar to Captains for Clean Water out there in Florida, just working people who care, who are willing to put in the time to, to bring the, the resources that are out there, the information resources, which are well hidden within. I mean, I challenge anyone to go to the Texas Commission of Environmental Quality's website and pull up anything about these projects. 
Um, they are making sure that it's as difficult as possible as a citizen to find out what they're up to. Um, and a lot of times, if you if you if you write a request for a public hearing um, for the right to try to deny these projects, it just gets rejected because you don't live here. Your 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 voice is not necessarily heard just because you go through the work. Um, it it's just basically going to take people finding out about this thing, and then taking time out of their lives to find out what sources, what entities they need to write to, to demand answers. Um, and and those four agencies are starting with Greg Abbott, the governor of the state, Texas Commission for Environmental Quality the Port of Corpus Christi Authority, and the Corps of Engineers. Those are Mm. the four government agencies that are working to satisfy their money interests, which are the oil companies, and make sure that they themselves get paid through this project. Like, you know, the oil companies are just doing their, their business. They're just trying to sell their commodity and get it to market. They don't care where they pick up the oil. It is the Port of Corpus Christi who is trying to bring those ships inshore to load up to their dock so they can get paid. And if Mm -hmm. we can just say, sorry, folks, you're powerful enough as it is. You got enough money. Stick to the other contents that come into your docks. But this oil, this tremendous amount of oil is going to be loaded safely offshore and delivered to foreign foreign soil Mm -hmm. without coming into our estuary. Yeah. And it's tough because when we talk about oil, you know, we can talk about gallons and it's very tangible from an economical standpoint where sometimes it can be hard to understand the impact that the environment does bring because that's what a lot of people are trying to move forward is economy, economy, economy. But like you mentioned, and I'm somebody that lives in Florida, you know, all this impacts the environment and economy too. Um, And I'll make sure that I put a link in in where people can follow this and try to get more information. And there's a few good sources out there that I'll link up. But if it's okay with you, I'd love just to to go to some rapid fire questions. I got some good burning rapid fire questions I have here. Yeah. uh, And I'll I'll say that that we're all kind of complacent in in that scenario. Like like uh, we all use oil. We all need to use oil and we will continue to use oil. I think that there's a responsible way to do that. Right. Um, you know, it's very hard to avoid buying single use plastic, but I would say, especially if you're a guide out there, it's Mm -hmm. incumbent on you to buy some stainless steel canteens by whatever manufacturer you choose and put a filter system on your sink. Stop buying plastic at this point. I mean, it's, I love chips and I buy bags of chips. I do. <laughs> I'm going to keep buying chips. But if, if cherry tomatoes don't come on the vine, if I can't just put them in my cart, if they come in a plastic tub, I don't buy them, right? Mm-hmm. You can avoid single-use plastic. You can turn your sink off while you're brushing your teeth. You don't have to use the, leave the water running. You can get wet in the shower, turn the shower off, soap up, and then finally rinse off you can save up to about 100 gallons plus a day in just in your bathroom by changing your habits. If you've got a yard that needs watering, let it die. Let the grass that grows in your yard naturally grow. If it doesn't grow, then have dirt in your yard. Let that water get to the estuary. Everything we do as consumers affects what's left out there in the environment. 
Consumers are the most important people in the world. We're the most powerful people in the world. If we don't buy it, they go out of business. So I think with with when I was in college, um, from from roughly eighty nine to ninety three, there were about four billion people in the world. Forty five. 4,500,000,000 people. Now there's close to 9 billion. We can't keep doing the same thing and expect there to still be stuff left out there, right? Um, and it feels good. Just tune it up. Tune up your act and, and mm. let's let's save some shit. Why don't we? Dude, that's a great t-shirt. We'll work on that. <laughs> um, all right, let's do a few fun rapid fire questions. You bet. So, my first one is you talked about doing 20 years of woodworking and the details that came with that as you worked your way up, you learned that. What are the tiny details that make up a great fisherman? Oh, wow, man. You know, I don't know if I'm a great fisherman. Like I said, I just love being out there and being, uh, finding myself surrounded in tranquility and having an opportunity or two to poke a fish. But I, w- I would say um, a lot of people um, create a separation, say like between hunting and stalking an animal and, and, and seeing a fish and expecting it to eat it, eat the fly. So, you know, there's this separation of water that we somehow think makes us invisible to the fish. Well, actually sound travels like what, 10 times faster and 10 times farther in water. So no one's surprised when you're walking through the woods and breaking twigs that a deer looks up and runs away. But somehow when we just like flop our fly down over and over on a redfish or, and we don't put it in the right spot the first time and the fish swims off, we're like, well, well, why didn't it eat, right? You have to stalk these animals. You're basically hunting when you're sight casting. You have to keep a low profile. Um, and the most of what people do that I see that come and fish with me, and, and I'm grateful they come, and I don't care if they do their homework first or not. I don't care if they're great casters or not. We'll work on it right? But if you truly want to be successful, I tell people to think about the first time the fly hits the water as the first shot from your rifle. If it's not on the money, if that first cast is not in front of and just a little bit beyond that fish where one or two strips puts it right in front of the redfish's face, your second and third and fourth casts have much lower probability. Just like if you miss a deer with the first shot out of a gun, you can still kill that deer, but it's going to be running away, right? Mm-hmm. So learning to cast, learning to put your fly where it needs to be, keeping a low profile, making as few false casts as possible, and then lowering the tip to the water and stripping as the fly hits the water, not having to grab your line and put it in your stripping finger. Like just being efficient, um, you know, and being able to put the fly where you need it to be for the fish to protect. The fish needs to think that fly is something it, it, it spooked up out of the grass. Um, you know, I'm getting lost in that explanation, but you know what I mean? The, yeah. the, the better you can cast, the more successful you're going to be with a fly rod, obviously, but, but it, it doesn't just come down to being a good caster. Casting well and fishing well are two different things. Fly needs to land softly and appear as a natural piece of prey. And in order to do that, you need to make as few moves as possible, put the fly where it needs to be, and strip it past the fish's face before the fish realizes you're there. Stepping Mm -hmm. around on the boat, 
you know, like, like changing your feet to get a new position. You're basically on a boat, you're on a big drum and those fish can hear you. They can feel you. Most fish that I catch on my boat with anglers realize we're there. They, they, they perceive a threat before we cast at the fish. They might be working a shoreline. All of a sudden they turn off that shoreline, start heading out 90 degrees to deeper water. That's a very catchable fish. But if the first cast is behind them, the fish start swimming faster out. And if a couple more casts are off, no chance, right? Mm -hmm. So just realize they're a wild animal. They're very keen in their environment. They're most likely going to realize we're there, but they won't associate that fly with with the threat we pose if it's put in the right place the first time. Mm. So I have a couple fun kind of, I think, short ones here. What do you think is the best food in Austin? Oh, man. Um, you know, probably my, either my wild boar carnitas or my Axis carne Um You're talking about your personal at your house. <laughs> yeah. I've liked, uh, I've liked the restaurant Uchi for a long time. It was our first five-star star restaurant. Um, it's a sushi joint. I've eaten sushi around the world, and I think that Uchi's one of the best. Um, other than that, there's a place called Vespaio on South Congress. It's been there a long time now. It's Italian food. It's tremendous. Um, it's a family atmosphere. They treat you really good. It's not, uh, gosh, there's so many. I haven't been to Austin in a while, but there's there's a lot of new, very talented chefs in, in town. It's, it's a real foodie town now. Um, I always look for a good steak and never find it. I think Bob's Steakhouse downtown is really good, but I'm old school. I would I would either suggest Wero's Taco Bar on South Congress. Um, there's just a couple things you need to order there. Uh, the small pastor tacos and the tortilla soup there are fantastic, along with the Hornitos Margarita. Um, Vespaio makes the best lasagna I've ever had, and there's a dish called um, uh, Machi Cure at... at uh, at uh, Uchi that's just unbelievable. Hmm. What are your top tips for beard care for those <laughs> who have beards and want to have a JT Van Zant beard? Um, leave it alone. Don't look at yourself in the mirror. Just let everything go. <laughs> Shower, be clean, but just don't be, don't be consumed with your looks. If you find yourself looking in the mirror, you're wasting time. You're not getting good at something else. You know, um, hmm. I, uh, I, I give myself a burr cut and shave my beard pretty short, like twice a year. Otherwise, I just I just let it grow. Okay. Not too worried about it. So, so <laughs> Although, you... I will say that a couple people have from different beard oil companies have given me some stuff that, that my wife is crazy about. And, you know, um, it does feel good. I forget to put it in there. But on occasion, if, 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 if you buy some beard products, some beard shampoo and some beard oil... That stuff works. I'm I'm spacing on the company, but it's from Lubbock, Texas. If you were to Google, you know, beard Lubbock, Texas, I'm sure it would pop up. And you, you can't fake it. You're not a hipster in Lubbock, Texas, right? That's out in the middle of nowhere, Texas Tech. It's farm country, cow, cattle country. If the men out there are willing to take care of their beards, so can we. And uh, there's a guy out there. Gosh, I wish I could give him props because he, he gave me a bunch of stuff at a fly fishing tournament in Port O'Connor um, back in September. He's a really great guy. 
um, he'll hear this and he, he'll wish I remembered his name. But now, yeah. how about this? You you text me the link. I'll put the link in the blog post. That sounds good. Everybody can uh, everybody can um, go and put their their new beard oil in. And if he's listening to this, he can put me on his pro staff too because I have a beard. And, yeah, it doesn't uh, feel like coarse beard hair when you use that when you use that <laughs> oil. It's like silky smooth, and and your wife or your girlfriend will love it. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So you said that, you know, you were 20 years in the industry and you were fishing and you were loving it and you were figuring things out. And then you went out to become a guide. How would you answer this question? When do you know it's time? When do you know that you're ready to become a guide? Um, I think that that, that, that's a multi-tiered question. I think you can become a guide pretty quickly at say a lodge um, somewhere that deals with specific rivers. You can, you know, in rivers, fish are confined to those holes and they're going to just be there. In saltwater, fish move around. It's a lot more complex. I think that, uh, I think the progression should be this. You take that fly rod and you use it for several years. You make it a passion. You, you become very good at casting that rod you become very good at catching fish. Then you go maybe work at a fly shop. You'll learn a ton at a fly shop. If, if, you're, if you have the opportunity to work at a fly shop and rig a bunch of reels for people and sell different tackle, you'll learn as much from the customer as you learn from reps and from your, your fellow employees. You'll become very efficient at setting up tackle, caring for tackle, working on reels. Like you, you'll become a, a tech technician of of the mechanics of fly fishing um, and you're basically immersed in all all the information in the industry then go and work for a lodge work on a river row row a boat down a river guide people trout fishing after that go to a saltwater area if that's your passion and just fish for a while um, I think navigation is the biggest obstacle to, to a young captain, you got to learn to run your ba- boat safely in all different tidal conditions, all different wind directions, all different like weather conditions. Um, when you feel confident running your boat in rough seas and you, you know, even without GPS, you know all the creeks and all the back lakes and all the, the not just where, but why, why fish want to be where they want to be when they want to be there. Um, then you're probably ready to start taking people fishing. Mm. You know, if you, if you went out and just caught a few redfish and you really love it and you think now I need to share this with the world, I would argue that, that you're not going to be the best guide and it's Mm. not going to last too long. So earlier you mentioned that you grew up as a kid watching the Walker's K Chronicles, and I'm excited because Flips agreed to do a podcast whenever we get in the same space at the same time. But for you as a guide and holistically, let's just say this, for you holistically as a man, what has been the most formative person in your life? Oh, my dad by far. Um my dad and his songwriting and, and the and the words and the wisdom and the songs he left me and he left all of his fans with are the most impactful. I think it's where I got my empathy for wild places and wild things, wild animals. Um, 
Uh, it's where my sensitivity comes from. It's where my aesthetic comes from. It's 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 why like he he sort of wasn't successful till necessarily like really well known till after he died, and 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 the fact that um, he stuck to something that wasn't really paying well wasn't like obviously um, successful during his lifetime, but it made him happy and he was he felt confident in what he was doing. That 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 made me uh, forge ahead and just follow my passions and, and, and not be too concerned with, with how people felt about it or how I was judged and how successful I was immediately. Like if it felt good to me, I've always done it. If it didn't feel good to me, I went the other direction and I credit him for that. He was kind of fearless and just moving forward, doing what he did. Uh, for no other reason, but he loved doing it and felt good about it. Mm. So something that I've just kind of been interested in is, and this isn't a gotcha question, but I know that you do eat sushi and sometimes occasionally uh, harvest fish. How do you decide when you're going to take an animal? Well, um, you know, when I'm hunting, like with a bow and arrow or a rifle, I'm typically out there for that specific reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like whitetail that much, although I will kill a doe on occasion. And I wouldn't mind killing a nice buck on my bow. And and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I will eat it. I'm not a trophy hunter. I do appreciate a good whitetail buck, but I don't need to necessarily kill it. Because I just am not crazy about whitetail meat. I typically turn it into hamburger or sausage. But um, so this is my the, my hunting criteria for land mammals is if they're an invasive species, they don't belong there. They kind of need control. I'm all about it. And and so it just so happens that we have a pretty large feral pig population that's definitely needs control. Like in fact, the state is like looking at ways to poison them, which will poison like caracara and eagles that eat carcasses. It'll, the poison they want to use will kill five times. So if the, if the pig is not buried immediately, at least three foot deep, whatever eats the pig dies. And then four other animals beyond that die if they consume that animal. I think that's ludicrous, and that's just an example of how we deal with things in Texas. And I always say the great thing about Texas is there's no regulation, and the absolute worst thing about Texas is there's no regulations, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So it's everyone's civic duty to go out and kill a pig and not just leave it laying there. They're delicious. Kill a pig, clean that pig, separate those muscle groups, and cook them properly, and it's it's better than store-bought pork. Axis deer, if for anyone who's never eaten an axis deer, that is just one that's one of the best red meats out there. And we have a bunch of axis in Texas that threaten the whitetail population. So I'm all about killing pigs and axis deer. I'm crazy about both of those, whether it's a buck or a doe. If it's an axis and it comes within range, I'm killing it and I'm gonna eat it. And same with pigs. Big giant boars. They're, that's a pretty gnarly animal to deal with, but your worst case scenario is you're going to have like 200 pounds of spicy sausage to, to eat and give away to friends. So if you shoot a big boar, don't just leave it laying there, 
go through the hard work of cleaning it. And, uh, you know, on a day when I'm fishing, I like black drum. Black drum are very prolific. I like to cook them whole. I like to uh, make them into ceviche. I like to take them and make fish stock out of them. I like to use the whole animal at least as much as I can. If I kill a redfish, it's because I caught 20 of them that day and it got hooked deep and it's probably not going to live anyway. And with redfish, I like to make them into ceviche. I'm not crazy Mm. about redfish fillets. Everyone loves redfish on the half shell. I don't like redfish on the half shell. You basically leave the scales on and cook it skin side down. That's my favorite way though, but Uh, I could get why some people wouldn't like it as much. Well, I just don't like the smell. Like cooking the scales, it just smells like hair on fire, you know? Um, And I taste that in the meat. I like to make redfish in the ceviche. It's very firm (laughs) meat. I cube it up, soak it in lime juice overnight, then drain it and make a pico de gallo on the side onions, cilantro, peppers, and tomato. And then I'll add fresh lime juice, add the add the lime cooked fish to the, the uh, pico de gallo, mix that all up, salt it well, salt and pepper, and then fresh lime with chips, amazing. Mm. Well, n- now you've kind of ruined it for me saying that it, <laughs> it smells like hair on fire. But outside of that, I think that, that all sounds- I was gonna ru- say a thousand toenails burning, but- <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. That sounds like a Texas thing that, you know, um, I, my last question is if you could put one thing on a billboard, what would you put? Consume less. Mm. Consume, well, consume less, live more. You know, I, I travel a bunch and, uh, I've, I've found out I can live pretty well with what's in my, my, my Ponga duffel bag, you know? So, I mean, I, I, uh, I don't need a lot of stuff and that that's that's my evolution like I I think in today's day and age like wanting that big house on the hill with with all of the headache that comes with that even if you're making a ton of money you're probably going to be a lot happier with less stuff like I spent a lot of years collecting a lot of things and it's easy to stack a bunch of stuff up in your garage it's really hard to go through it and get rid of stuff and and when your garage is cluttered full of things, um, it just adds stress in the back of your mind. Like it's really fun to travel light, to be light and be free. Um, and and you just I like fine. I like really well made things. I like quality things. I like the right things, the things I use all the time. And uh, you just don't need much else. You need you need a good stove, a good fridge. A good woman, a good fly rod, a good rifle, a good guitar, you know, a good canoe, a good skiff. Um, it's a pretty long list if I keep going, but you don't need a bunch of the, you don't need replicas of the same thing. You don't need 20 guns. And I've, I've had 20 guns and, and it's tough to sell guns. Just, just be thoughtful in what you purchase and how you use it and use it well. Enjoy it. Hey, man, thank you for this time. This has been really helpful to me, and I'm sure it's been helpful to others. Um, if people want to follow you and, and they enjoy uh, just listening to you, uh, could you tell us just a little bit quickly about your podcast and then where they could follow you online? Yeah, um, you know, Yeti was, was super sweet reaching out to me and asking if I wanted to participate in a podcast through Yeti Presents. Uh, we decided to call it Drifting with JT Van Zant. It's on iTunes, and uh, 
I think you can find it on the Yeti website, but definitely on their on their um, on their channel, and also on iTunes under just Drifting with JT Van Zant. And also my my website is jtvanzant.com where you can book a trip to come fishing with me. And uh, yeah, once again, man, it's really important. You know, I've made a ton of mistakes in my life. I'm far from perfect, and I I don't claim to be. I I spend my life, I spend every day in the marsh around the percolation of bait fish and shrimp and crabs and birds. And I've been just, just hugely affected emotionally by those animals, by their simplicity, by their beauty. And I just want to protect them. And I see, um, a lot of humans that, that pay money to come, come see me live lives very separated from that. And that, they're astounded and they're put at ease and they're, they're amazed and they're, and they're, they're humbled by the beauty of the Texas marsh. And there's places like that all around the world that need, need protecting. And I think we, we don't directly correlate our daily decisions, our consumption, um, with the health of, of resources that are downstream from us. And I just, I just ask folks to, uh, to come down and come enjoy the amazing resource that we have in the middle Texas coast. And then, and then as they drive back upland, just think about their lives and how they can make them better by, by having a, having a positive impact on their environment and on their immediate environment. Everything we all do every day affects that. And, and uh, I care about all of us and I care about nature and uh, I want to be around. I want my kids to enjoy. I want your kids to enjoy and I get pretty sentimental about it, but that's, I think it's the truth, you know, here's to everybody and hope everyone has a great life. Man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. You bet Hunter. Me too, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Captain's Collective. If you could just give us a moment, we'd love for you to continue to share the podcast as we try to grow it, especially as we head into season two. We're grateful for your support. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv